Good morning. Welcome to chapel, everyone. We're happy to be joined by people both in person and online this morning. Whoever you are and however you're joining us, welcome. Every year, we invite a faculty member to share a part of their faith journey with us. Today, we have the privilege of hearing from Keith Graber-Miller about his faith story. I first met Keith when I was getting ready to go to Guatemala with Goshen College's study service theology term, and Keith bravely led myself and 15 other high schoolers to Guatemala for three weeks where we traveled around, learned about theology, learned about the country, um, and had a, a great experience all around. And that was one of the reasons why I chose to come to Goshen College, and Keith was a big part of that experience for me. At Goshen College, I've had the pleasure of attending several of Keith's classes and was even able to practice my interviewing skills on him for my junior seminar at one point. So he's a great conversationalist, and we're very glad that Keith has agreed to share his story with us this morning. Whenever a person stands up to share their faith story, whether for the first time or the 50th time, it is a vulnerable and holy moment. We ask that you honor this time this morning by giving the gift of your attention and allowing yourself to be carried along with his story. Let's begin with a short prayer. Please join me. God, thank you for this day and for the ways that you constantly move in our lives. Be with us this morning and open our hearts to your presence. May we fully experience all that you have in store for us. May it be so. Amen.
Same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose up, uh, rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Keith is very eager to speak, but first I have to introduce him, which is basically me bragging for him because he must maintain his image as a humble Mennonite. <clears throat> Many of you already know Keith, um, or at the very least you've heard of him. He's been here at Goshen College since 1987 when he was uh, first here as an interim campus pastor. Then he taught in the communication department for a few years and then moved into his current role as professor of Bible, religion, and philosophy. Keith has written and edited quite a lot academically. Um, I believe it was something like six books, 15 book chapters, and 20 plus journal articles. I have never read any of them, but I assume that they're all very good. <laughs> While at Goshen College, Keith and his family have led SST a total of nine times in five different countries. Keith is the husband of Anne and father of Niles, Mia, and Simon. Niles and his spouse Corinne currently live in Goshen and are expecting their first child. Mia and her wife are currently living in Japan, and Simon is a senior here at GC studying biology. Together, Keith and Anne own the store Found in downtown Goshen, which is an international furniture and art gallery. Keith is retiring at the end of this semester, and we are so pleased that he agreed to speak today. So everybody, please welcome Keith Graber-Miller. Thanks so much with the cold and uh, with chapels not being required this month. I'm so grateful to see this many people uh, out on a morning like this. One of the most eventful times I reported on my story of faith was nearly four decades ago at Howard Miami Mennonite Church in Kokomo where I was a pastor. Ann Graber, my significant other, was there that Sunday visiting from Scottsdale, Pennsylvania. In that faith pilgrimage, I told some of the stories I'm going to tell you, weaving together themes of trust and fidelity and fear and hope. And at the end of the religious autobiography, right there in front of God and 240 witnesses, I proposed to Anne from the pulpit. Um, it was a phenomenal event. My grandmother audibly gasped, and then there were five, segment, uh, five seconds of pregnant silence. We ended up walking out down the center aisle singing with the congregation, Blessed be the tie that binds. Today's journey of faith will not be nearly as eventful 
And believe me, proposing from the pulpit was not wise or sensitive or prudent, and I totally disrecommend it. Uh, don't try this at home. Ironically, the Scottsdale Independent Observer, Anne's local paper, printed a brief write-up of the faith pilgrimage incident, but botched the final line by leaving out a critical word. The article said, the proposal was the conclusion of Keith's faith that day. <laughs> it, it wasn't, though I'll confess the subsequent four decades of experiencing faith have not always been easy, leading me rather far away from the faith of my youth, from the recitation of glib aphorisms, from many theological and ecclesial certainties. And more importantly, in this context, I'm particularly cognizant that the world of faith that most of you, most of you who are students at least, and those of us who are adults have experienced, for you have grown up in, have been deeply troubled, often unappealing. I teach in the Bible and religion department at Goshen College, a department that had 60 majors and minors just over a decade ago, but now has only two majors, though they are darned good ones and about 10 earnest minors whom we also love. Over the course of the last decade and more, a series of cultural wins has buffeted essentially all college and university religion departments, the humanities in general, across the country, leaving them under siege. Young people who watched their parents endure recessions or lose jobs or be underemployed have turned in droves away from the humanities toward less risky disciplines that lead to a professional job immediately after college. And young, college-bound people who've grown up in faith communities where their gay and lesbian and gender queer peers were rejected often have been rightly repulsed by religion, all while coming of age in a country where there has been violence against those from underrepresented groups and where some of those claiming religious values have sold their souls to political charlatans. It's no wonder that the Pew Research Center reported in December that the number of Americans with no religious affiliation has nearly doubled over the past 14 years, from 16% to 29%. Self-identified Christians dropped from 78% of the nation's population to 63% during that period of time, just as most of you were heading into young adulthood. Too often in our denominational and educational institutions, fragile as they are, there's not been a recognition that we need, now more than ever, alternative visions of what it may mean to be religious, to opt to stand in a tradition, or to think critically about faith, that we might need visions of sacred texts that call us towards something more uh, noble, a narrative more enlivening, a way of life more filled with integrity and authenticity, that we might need to understand the complexities of our own religious backgrounds as well as those of others in order to more thoughtfully navigate the world we're entering. In our contemporary context, we need far more reflective and integrity-filled Bible and religion offerings and Bible and religion majors, not far less. But I'm getting ahead of myself and perhaps a bit off track for a faith pilgrimage, so let me go back to the beginning. I was conceived in September of 1958 and born nine months later on May 8th of 1959. 
I was the third child and only son born to deeply committed parents, people rooted in the Mennonite church and people who loved their children well. My childhood was healthy and happy and grace-filled for the most part, even though the stories I'll tell from those days may make it seem not so. First, two traumas from my earliest days. The first occurred when I was only one year old and riding in a car with my grandparents and other relatives. Grandpa and Grandma were taking care of me that weekend, and on the way home from church, we had a tragic accident. A car crossed our intersection, going about 50 miles an hour, slamming into our station wagon and flinging it into the ditch. My great-grandmother was killed in the crash. My grandfather and teenaged uncle and two of his friends all were ejected from the car with exotic combinations of broken legs and arms and ribs. As this was in the day before seatbelts, one of the teens in the back seat had been holding me in his arms, and somewhere in the car's spinning, I was catapulted over a fence and 30 feet farther out into a bean field. Some have, uh, have thought that my grandmother, my grandmother did, great-grandmother, went through the front windshield and under the car to her death, and they thought that her breaking out the front window might have allowed an exit passage for me to move out of the car. Those who came on the scene first couldn't locate me until they heard me crying. And when they found me, I had only three tiny scratches on my forehead. Two years later, I fell into a well on my aunt and uncle's back porch. As a three-year-old, I was curious about the round wooden cover on that porch floor, so I pushed it back and peered into the darkness it concealed and then tumbled into six feet of water. It was drowning. Fortunately, lying on her belly, my aunt could just reach the tip of my middle finger as I stretched out of the water. I know that hearing those stories during my childhood, hearing them repeatedly during my adolescence, gave me a strong sense of purpose, a deep appreciation for God's goodness, and a feeling that God had spared me for a reason. I now struggle mightily with the theology behind that, given the reality that not all children who fall in wells or who fly out car windows live. But I know that those incidents gave me an early embodied perception of a gracious protecting God and a sense of calling to serve that God who I believed had saved me. Even as my theology has shifted, that enfleshed sense of gratitude for life has stayed with me. And then just before hitting adolescence, my friend, good friend, and same-age cousin suffocated while playing in a bin of shelled corn in a barn loft. Ronnie slipped into the middle of the bin and was dragged to the bottom of the rush by the rush of outflooring corn, and he was buried below tons of kernels. We arrived at the family farm just in time to see medics loading his lifeless body onto a gurney. I was 11 then, and just after that, I made an initial faith commitment in the midst of a revival service in my home congregation. I know most of you have never been to a revival service. At that point in my life, my Christian commitment came out of a fear of death and hell. I found myself being frightened backward, a kind of breach birth, but first birth into the reign of God. No matter what the motivation, though, I did experience a new freedom out of that confession. I then had an extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary group of intimate friends during my junior high and high school years, friends from the church who developed in me a strong sense of community and who kept me accountable 
Through the usual struggles of late adolescence, I learned to know in greater measure God's grace, which at the time simply meant not getting caught in various activities by parental or civil authorities. But I want to leap ahead to my sophomore year at Franklin College, an American Baptist school just south of Indianapolis, where I'd gone to study journalism. At the time, my parents and my congregation were a bit leery of the liberalism of Goshen College, which might be the irony of ironies. Uh, and I perceived little encouragement to come this direction. I feel so fortunate to be teaching at a place I really should have been studying at back then, though my years at Franklin were where I was the only Mennonite and the only pacifist also were significant developmental ones for me. But during my sophomore year of college, I lived about five years of life in one eight-month block. The only comparably uh, multi-whammy year I've had since then was 2015, when my mother succumbed too young to metastatic breast cancer, my best friend over the past 30 years died totally out of the blue. And I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. But that sophomore year of college, my most turbulent year to that point in my life, began when I left for a six-week backpacking tour of Europe, my first extended spell away from home. While in Italy, I meditated in the underground catacombs where early Christians met in secret and saw the Roman Colosseum where our faith ancestors suffered for their convictions. It was tremendously moving to visit these sacred and uh, terrible sites. The month after my return to the States in early March, I experienced a lung collapse, a pneumothorax. The morning after I had been admitted to the hospital for observation, I just had a series of x-rays when a team of physicians and nurses rushed into the room. The medical personnel chased my friends from my side and out of the room. They pulled the curtain around me and somberly said, the lung isn't reinflating. We need to go in there. Two minutes and one local anesthetic shot later, the primary physician took a, a metal rod about this long, about half again as large as a number two pencil and as sharp as one, and, uh, and uh, placed it against the side of my chest and rammed it uh, into my body, into my side. Then he shoved a drainage tube through that uh, rib cage and hooked me to a machine that pumped excess uh, air from my body cavity. And then my medical assailants uh, left the room. Just like the poor biblical man who was attacked on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, I felt as though I'd been stripped and beaten and left for dead and with insufficient painkiller. But what happened next was a critical faith learning. There in a foreign town, without my family or friends around me, I suffered, and I waited for someone to minister to me, and then in he walked, my atheist professor from my logic class, the provocateur, who'd spent the entire term intellectually stimulating me and scaring the hell and the heaven out of me with his godless worldview. And Dr. Howald, recognizing my pain, was silent. He simply grabbed my left hand, allowing me to squeeze some of the agony into his flesh. And then moments later, in came Father Mazzola, the campus's wandering Catholic priest, whom I almost totally disliked based on earlier conversations we'd had. And Father Mazzola, also sensing my trauma, came to my right side, reaching for my right hand and tightening his grip. And there I was, the holy Mennonite boy, wedged between my enemies, 
the atheist and the priest. It was those two, my good Samaritans, who showed mercy on me, who bound up my wounds, and who called for more painkiller. I learned a good deal about self-righteousness that day and about acceptance of those with whom I differed and about finding Christ in all people regardless of what they believed. Later that spring, I developed a close friendship with Dr. Howald, and I toyed with his atheism, but eventually rejected it. Yet later in that spring, this is all still in the same year, I experienced sophomore uncertainty, a disease that sometimes also strikes on this campus, and I decided to quit college with no idea of what I would do with my life. I returned home in May and began working for my brother-in-law and his family in their construction business, and I confess to you that I stand before you this day as a Goshen College professor, partly because I recognize that, unlike Jesus, I have almost no carpentry skills. Um, Failure in that arena drove me back to the academy. But not before I'd had a stressful summer and fall of construction work. Just three weeks after I began working with my brother-in-law, riding to and from the sites with him each day, spending 40 hours a week with him and his entire uh, family, my sister left him. And later that fall, they were divorced. Three months after my sister left her husband, my uncle next door abandoned my beloved aunt after a quarter century of marriage. Out of the crucible of that year, the intellectual, emotional, and physical and spiritual wrenching of my being, I made a forward commitment of faith, an adult decision to follow in the way of Christ. And at the same time, I began to sense more clearly a calling to and a desire for ministry of some sort, whether in pastoring or writing or teaching or whatever, a commitment that continues for me. I realized that such a shift would require formal education, so I returned to Franklin and finished my BA. After school, when a job fell into my lap, I began working as a journalist, editing and writing for two newspapers over the next two years. During those months, after graduation, I kept in touch with several college friends, one of whom was a fellow journalist and still completing his studies. Tim was the campus's unofficial model Christian in a humble sort of way, the kind of person you'd want for a son or a brother. I'm busy finishing up this year, he'd written to me on May 6th of 1982. I still plan to go to England next fall. I'll try to write more later in order to be more complete. Less than two weeks later, Tim drove his Chevy truck 90 miles an hour down a country road steering it into a boulder that then catapulted the vehicle and its driver 160 feet through the air. The pickup landed on its top and burst into flames, burning Tim beyond recognition. It was suicide. Tim had left a note in his dorm room and also had thrown one out the site, apologizing just in case anyone else was harmed as he took his own life. I realized later that Tim was coming to grips with his sexual orientation, unable to speak of it, and ever since have so regretted that we hadn't had a chance to talk. Tim's death was part of the impetus for my lifelong commitment to support and encourage and empower and befriend and simply listen to those who have for too long been marginalized because of their sexuality or gender identity. In any event, the word tragedy was incarnated, was embodied for me in the death of my friend. 
The following day, I went to Franklin, and I wandered around campus talking with friends. And then at the end of the day, I drove to the field and knelt by the ashes where Tim had died. In the midst of that charred upholstery, I could see the scorched soles of his tennis shoes, the shoes he'd been wearing during the crash. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I interrogated God. I wanted to know why. Why Tim, of all people, had to die? Out of that experience and others, I came to believe, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, and perhaps it's what many of you also believe, that not all happens is not all that happens is God's will. Not all that occurs among us is some uh, divinely ordained purpose and plan. Theologian William Sloan Coffin Jr. wrote after the tragic accidental death of his own son, God doesn't go around the world with her finger on triggers, his fist around knives, her hands on steering wheels. God is dead set against all unnatural deaths, which is not to say that there are no nature-caused deaths, deaths that are untimely and slow and pain-ridden. But the one thing that should never be said when someone dies is, it is the will of God. Never do we know enough to say that. I can only believe that when Tim died, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to break. When Harry Emerson Fosdick was pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, he had many opportunities to counsel students. One evening, a young man came to Fosdick and announced that he could no longer believe in God. So Fosdick said to him, all right, but describe for me the God you no longer believe in. The student uh, proceeded to describe the God he was rejecting, an angry God who was off in some distant sky, one more concerned with judgment than with grace, one who always condemned and never embraced. And when the student finished, Fosdick replied, well, we're in the same boat. I don't believe in that God either. Many, perhaps most of the gods we've created over the years, I no longer believe in. I do believe in the divine vision we know through the servant life and embodied witness and peaceable way of Jesus. I recognize that many of my current beliefs forged out of a lifetime stray from Christian orthodoxy, as did the faith of my Anabaptist forebears, though they are embedded in Christian orthopraxy, the practice of faith. Two small examples, not so dramatic perhaps. First, I don't believe that Jesus' primary mission and principal message was to uh, die to save us from our sins. Certainly not in any contemporary evangelical sense of that phrase, not as a, a magical substitutionary atonement to appease an angry God. But as one of my wise pastors sometimes says, there's a baby worth claiming in that Christian bathwater that's being thrown out. I've sought to look for clues about Jesus' own self-understanding and the recorded sayings and doings of Jesus in the framework of known hopes and convictions of first century Jewish people to grasp why Jesus concluded that he had to pursue a path seeking to live intentionally with a heart for God, hanging out with sinners, confronting religious and political authorities when they were harming others, speaking up for those rejected and marginalized in, by their society, a life trajectory that provoked his early arrest and subsequent cross death. In that sense, ultimately, perhaps, Jesus sought to heal, to save us from the sins of being addicted to violent, exclusionary, individualistic, greed-filled ways of living. More personally, even though with each passing year I charge ever closer to the abyss or the door, I'm quite 
uncertain about what lies in the great beyond, what happens when biological life ceases and cerebral capacities are shut down, when our bodies have drained in their blood and infused with embalming chemicals or burned to dust. I do know that the tradition's promise of post-life bliss is not a primary moral motivator for me, though some sort of absorption into godness might indeed be an added theological bonus. My ethical and relational energies, though, have been focused on this life, the one we know considerably more about, with the hope of being remembered graciously by those who enriched my life, including those I've mentored or parented or taught or loved. Since the mid-1980s, in one way or another, I've been involved in the academic and experiential pursuit of the divine and in the vocation of teaching. I'm immensely grateful from, for what I have learned from my students, and I have learned immensely. And I have been touched and moved by scores of Muslim and Buddhist and Christian and atheist host families and assistants in our nine semesters of SST leadership in Cuba and Costa Rica and Dominican Republic and Cambodia and China. My faith also has been profoundly affected by interactions with fellow members at Assembly Mennonite Church, where we are ever so slowly being transformed into better people, although in the past I've experienced some pain caused by a previous congregation, a story I'm not telling you today, and some of you have also experienced pain from previous congregations, I know how much I need other seeking folks around me to help keep me accountable, to function as a community of memory, to stumble along with me. Somewhere in my conception and socialization process, the church gene was infused in me. I'm genetically predisposed to love the church, and I do. I love my local congregation. I love the larger Mennonite Fellowship. I love the broader church and other religious communities worldwide. And I truly believe that faith communities are a treasure, even though a treasure in earthen vessels carried forward by fallible people like you and like me. My theological understandings and commitments also have been broadened and deepened by encounters with feminist and Latin American and queer perspectives. My faith has been challenged by my ongoing commitment to nonviolence in a world prone to violence. My journey has been nourished by seeking to live with Christian hope and with faithful integrity. It's been enriched both by academic rigor and by stories of faith and faithlessness I've heard from my students and my friends. As I've already indicated, at times in my search, I've lost faith in God. At times, I've wrestled with God to the point of exhaustion, and then the divine has in that closeness embraced me in love or blessed me with a Jacob-like hip punch. On occasion, in a hymn or prayer or the hug of a caring friend, I've known God's presence, felt the tingle of a God moment. I've overcome my fear of asking questions, of wondering what terrors may be lurking behind every theological door I crack open. My last four decades of life of pastoring, teaching, and seminary and doctoral training, and counseling, and laughing, and loving, and marrying, and relating, and fathering have been motivated by the desire to engage with gratitude and compassion alongside other companions on the way. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr says, life is a school, the school of love, to learn to see God in everything, in every encounter, and in our inevitable suffering, as difficult as that can be, 
Seeing in this way may be the elusive meaning in life, for in doing so, we can live a grace-filled and compassionate life for ourselves and for others. Although limping, faltering, and stumbling with every move, I am intensely committed to the search for living authentically in the light of Christ, and I hope I never lose the spirit of that quest. Some years ago, while a graduate student in religion at Harvard University, Mary Moschella gave Harvard's baccalaureate address. In the speech, which I'll quote at length, Michelle tells a story that speaks eloquently about learning to see anew and discovering a vocation. She says, last summer I was in Israel working on an archaeological dig. At the site of the ancient city of Dor, each day as I swung my pick into the age-old soil, I was inwardly chipping away at issues of personal faith and belief and the global issues of human struggle, militarism, racism, sexism. I expended a good deal of energy cursing the facts of human suffering in the world and trying to imagine some kind of hope of restoration. Excavating can be rather tedious. Only rarely did we turn up any precious small finds. Most of the time was spent staring at dirt walls and broken pottery shards. In my square, she said, not even one whole vessel was uncovered all season. Just so many broken pieces, scraps of ancient civilization. All the brokenness appeared to me as an accurate metaphor for understanding the world. Broken and crushed every piece of it. Broken with small personal pains as well as with overwhelmingly large human struggles. Yet as the summer went on, she says, and I kept staring at the pottery, I slowly started to notice something more than just the brokenness. Some of the pieces of clay, however broken, were really quite beautiful. Later in the summer, I found out about the business of pottery mending. This Tedious work goes on year-round in a cathedral-like building not far from the Tell. Here, ancient vessels have been slowly and carefully reconstructed. I remember being completely amazed at seeing those huge restored jugs for the first time. How could anyone have possibly managed to piece together so many small, nondescript chips of clay? Seeing the restored, those restored vessels, she says, encouraged me to imagine, perhaps, that at least some of the world's brokenness could be overcome. I began to see myself in a kind of vocation of mending, of repairing some of the world's brokenness. To mend the world, says Michelle, to proclaim a radical vision of social transformation that would prevent future brokenness from occurring. These are the tasks that I perceive the world to be demanding of me. End quote. Those are the tasks to which all of us are called, I believe, in our own ways, through multiple paths. Amen and amen. Smiling, have spoken my name.
I believe God has made us all God's people to invite others to be disciples, to encourage one another to deeper commitment, to proclaim forgiveness of sins and hope, to reconcile all people to God through word and deed, to bear witness to the power of love over hate, to meet the daily tasks of life with purpose, to work for justice where there is oppression, to suffer joyfully for the cause of right, to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age, to the praise of God's glory. Amen. Go in peace.